We're joined now with Jack Curry, Yes Network studio host, WFUV alum, author, full count, the education of a pitcher. More recently, swinging a hit, nine innings of what baseball taught me. But before we get into all of that, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time. How you doing? Always good to return to my roots at WFUV. So Mike and Ryan, very excited to talk to you guys, talk some Yankee baseball, talk about my Paul O'Neill book. This will be a lot of fun. And let's start with that book with Paul O'Neill coming out Tuesday, I believe. Kind of just curious how that came together and any possible cool stories you can share about the process. So I've known Paul O'Neill for almost 30 years. I covered him when he first got traded to the Yankees in 1993 and loved talking, hitting with him. Now I work with him at the Yes Network. And over the years, we've had so many conversations about hitting. I finally approached him a few years ago and talked about doing a book. The interesting thing is you already mentioned my David Cohn book. So I had conversations with Paul and David simultaneously. I ended up doing the Cohn pitching book first and now got around to doing the hitting book with Paul. And what I think stands out about this book, guys, is yes, it's Paul O'Neill talking about hitting and his theories and his philosophies and his memories. But what we really tried to do was also thread a lot of other people who impacted him through his career. So you'll hear about Pete Rose, Don Mattingly, Joe Torrey, Bernie Williams. You'll even hear about Ted Williams. So it's Paul O'Neill's hitting journey. Some of it with him on the field, some of it what he learned from other people. Uh, Jack, I'm curious to know, when you were writing this book, was there a certain part of it that you had the most fun writing about? Obviously, you have a great relationship with Paul O'Neill. What was the most uh, enjoyable thing about writing this book? So I've done a lot of interviews for this book, and I want to tell you, that's a fantastic question, because as you were asking that, I'm thinking, wow, that's a great question. I probably have two that really stood out. Paul O'Neill's sister, Molly, was a writer for the New York Times, and she wrote about food. Ted Williams was a great fisherman and loved to cook. So she actually had an interview with Ted Williams once, and she happened to mention to Ted Williams, my brother is struggling. He's not hitting well right now. And Ted Williams said to Molly, get him on the phone. So here's Paul O'Neill getting ready for its spring training day with the Yankees in Tampa. And suddenly Ted Williams, one of the greatest hitters of all time, is on the telephone, on the cell phone, talking to him about his hitting style. And what floored O'Neill guys was that Ted Williams knew Paul as a hitter. He said to him, I bet you're not hitting the ball the opposite way. So writing that chapter, I just enjoyed it so thoroughly because here was Paul O'Neill, five-time World Series champion, batting champion, a guy who had over 2,000 hits. But he was the little kid all over again being instructed by somebody like Ted Williams. So that, that probably is the chapter I had the most fun writing about. Now, without giving away too much in the book, just curious, when people read it, what do you think will be the number one takeaway you know, they take from Paul O'Neill? We all know about his intensity and his passion and his fiery personality. I think people will realize that, that what they saw on the field was sincere. And even as someone who covered him, it, it was burning at a higher level than even I knew. Paul took losing and failure so hard. He was in awe, guys, of somebody like Derek Jeter, who would go 0 for 5, might even make an error that cost the game, would walk out of the clubhouse whistling and eating an ice cream cone. Jeter was the best guy, just turn the page, go on to the next day. Paul couldn't do that. He was wired differently. So I think people will see kind of inside the mind of a great hitter, but also in some ways a tortured hitter. Because if Paul went 0 for 10, 
he thought he was going to go over 100. He, he fought himself so hard. So I think that will stand out. And like I said, just his hitting philosophies and kind of how they would play today, because as a line drive hitter and a guy who had a slight uppercut at the end of his swing, he's different from a lot of hitters today. He's more like a DJ LeMahieu type. You have a lot of people today who are more of the, the big uppercut swing, trying to get underneath the ball and launch it for a home run. In addition to coming out with this book on Paul Neal, you also wrote a book about David Cohn in the past. In what ways have the writing processes of those two books been unique, different from each other? And what ways have they been the same? They were similar because I had good relationships with, with both men and, and guys I'd known for almost 30 years and who I happen to call colleagues right now. So there was a trust factor. And I think when you're writing about someone and, and you need to capture their voice, they'd better be able to trust that you can do that. And two of the best compliments I ever received were David Cohn's dad said to me, you, you nailed it. I thought my son wrote that book. He said, I know it was my son's thoughts and you were writing it, but it felt like David wrote it. And uh, Paul's wife said the same thing. She said, you did a great job. You, you really captured who Paul was. I guess the difference, guys, and this was not really created by us, obviously, with Paul, because of the pandemic, a lot of the interviews were done over the phone. And people weren't going to the ballpark. People weren't uh, traveling. With David, when we worked on that book, I interviewed him at Yankee Stadium. I interviewed him at the Yes Network Studios. We interviewed uh, at my house. We interviewed at a restaurant. So that's kind of just a, a logistical thing. I, I don't think it changed anything about what we were doing. I, I think you find out with these players, their memories are unbelievable too. What they remember about specifics and games and a game from spring training that, that might be lost to history, but, but how much they remembered. And with the Cone book, probably the highlight for me was getting the chance to sit down with him and watch the perfect game all over again. He had never done that with anyone in 20 years. And here we were sitting in my house on a DVR, watching him go for 27 straight outs again. And you know, he got, he got tense. He got edgy all over again. So of course I did. He was kind of leaning forward in the chair. You know he's going to get the perfect game, but you're still watching it with a little bit of a little bit of doubt and a little bit of tension. Swinging a hit, nine innings of what baseball taught me with Jack Curry and Paul Neal coming out next week. And Jack, I think that's a Fordham hat in the background uh, of your yeah. screen right there. And I wanted to ask you about you know your time at Fordham. It's senior week right now, graduation Saturday. Just wondering, are there were there any memories or moments from your Fordham career that have stuck with you throughout the years? Well, when uh, Bobby, your advisor, mentor, great guy, reminded me that uh, it's graduation this weekend, of course, and we'd probably have to do a pretty long show for, for all those memories to stand out. But a lot of my memories revolve around exactly what you guys are doing right now. I loved Fordham and, and going to class and getting my degree and making sure I did well in all my courses. But I loved being a part of WFUV and also writing for the RAM. And my greatest memories revolve around those experiences made some great friends at Fordham and the ability I think to feel as if you are a pro broadcaster or a professional journalist even though technically you really weren't yet you were still a college kid trying to find his way that's what I think I took the most out of Fordham is that by the time I was 19 or 20 years old I said I, I can do this I'm going to be okay I'm, I'm going to forge my path in this sports journalism career and I'm going to find a way to to make this my career and I, I give Fordham 
all of the credit for that. Yeah, before we get into talking about this Yankees team, I want to ask more about your journey, starting as a columnist, then transitioning into TV. What was that process like? And what about being a writer helped you prepare to be on air? Another great question. I always considered myself a writer. From the time I was 13, I wanted to be a sports writer. Uh, I, I read newspapers voraciously. Uh, I followed sports writers and tried to emulate the styles of some of them that I really liked and ended up being fortunate enough that a year out of college, I got a job at the New York Times. And I mean, talk about a dream come true. And I, and I had to work my way up at the New York Times. I didn't walk through the door and they said, hey, why don't you cover the Yankees? I was only 23 at the time. So I had to cover high school sports, cover college sports, moved on to uh, the Nets beat for one year, and then finally got to cover the Yankees. And that's where I always wanted to be covering Major League Baseball. And honestly, guys, I thought I would work for the New York Times for my entire life. I thought I would stay there for 40 plus years, retire, and that would be a great career. Who wouldn't want to have that as a career? But the way the the business was changing and print journalism, in my mind, was becoming less of a focus and broadcast journalism was becoming a heavier focus. I always had friends who said to me, why don't you give broadcasting a try, including Michael Kay, another Fordham alum, who now is the great play-by-play -play voice at the S Network. He was always saying to me, why don't you give TV a try? And it finally got to a point in 2009 where I felt as if I had done all that I could do at the Times Maybe it was time in your early 40s to try and make a transition. And as much as I love my job at the Times, I, I love my job at Yes even more. So I'm very thrilled that I, I made the switch. And I think the way writing helps me is that I, I see games almost in paragraph form. I'm sort of writing a game story or a column in my head. So my boss at the Yes Network, when he hired me, said, take those five or six points that you used to make in a column and boil them down to five or six points in a show. You're going to have to say it in 20 or 30 seconds. You can't say it in a minute and a half, but that's always the routine that I've tried to follow. And I've always tried to tell the viewers something that I find interesting or something that they might not have seen during a game. And that's was how I tried to do the job as a print journalist and how I try to do it as a broadcast journalist. We're joined now with Jack Curry and Jack, something I always find really interesting, especially on Twitter. You're, you break a lot of news for the Yankees and it's always reliable. You're a guy where when you kind of tweet out a rumor report, that's how you know there's validity behind it. I'm curious how you've gotten those opportunities to break scoops, you know, report on different stuff like that and be the guy that really brings stuff to light. Ryan, it's interesting that you say that because from the time I started covering the Yankees in 1990 until now, the art of breaking news has changed so much. First of all, there's so much competition. There's so many wonderful reporters and writers out there who are pushing for the same news that you are. And it used to be long before you guys were born. If you had a scoop in 1992, you, you had that scoop for 24 hours because the internet didn't exist. The, the, everyone who tried to match you or beat you had to wait a full day for their newspaper to come out. So it was a double-edged sword because you got to really enjoy a scoop. But if you got beat, man, that was a painful 24 hours until you could come back with a scoop. Now, if someone reports something, usually 90 seconds later, if not quicker, someone else says, confirm that with my source. So I think, Ryan, the way to answer your question is you've got to get people to trust you. As a reporter, you want people to trust you. It's a bonus if people like you, but I never felt in this job that people have to like me. 
I want them to respect me and I want them to trust me. And the thing about social media and Twitter is I'd rather be a guy who tweets 10 times a month and is right 10 times than 10 times a day and be right one time. And a lot of people speculate and a lot of people put stuff up and throw it up against the wall. I'm a big believer in if I tweet something, I want people to believe it's right. So to have you say that, I feel as if I'm doing my job the right way. I, I might hear something and, and check with two people who I trust and they might say, eh, there's about a 20% chance that that's going to happen. And I might just sit on it and I might just wait. And then sometimes you have information that, that isn't worth sharing and, and you'll share it when it gets closer to being a uh, story that will come to fruition. Transitioning into this year's Yankees team, one of the best starts in recent memory. It seems like they can beat you in almost any different way, whether that's pitching, the bullpen, the lineup hitting for power. Are you able to compare this team to any Yankees teams in recent memory? And maybe if you can't, what separates them from any other team we can remember? Well, the one thing we've seen in recent days because of the hot start, there were people comparing them to the 1998 team because of similar starts at certain points in the season. I covered that team. And in fact, I'm writing a book on that team next. That's going to be a book I write for next year about the 1998 book. That's a heavy comparison because of what that team ended up doing. As we're watching this team come together, I wonder to myself, could this be a 105-win team, 110-win team? We, we know what that team did, winning 114 games. Just, just crazy. So I think the comparisons, we can have some fun with them, but, but this team will tell us who they are. The thing that stands out for me is you mentioned the offense. I feel as if their offense has been really good and yet they're still waiting for some guys to come along. They're, they're still waiting for some guys to kind of jump on the train. I remember Chili Davis giving me a quote once that has always hung with me. He was struggling or, or he wasn't pulling his weight at one point. And he said, the rest of this team is going hundred miles an hour. I'm going 50. They're not going to wait for me. I got to get up to 100 and, and catch up. So that's the thing that stands out for me about the offense. And guys, I look at their bullpen and I'm not sure I've ever seen a bullpen with this many weapons. And, and that includes the 98 team. That includes the 96 team. When, when, when Mariano and Wetland turned games into six inning affairs. And by that, I, I mean the depth and the versatility that Aaron Boone has to go to right now. And part of that is also the way the game has changed. Uh, managers are, are pulling starters earlier than ever before. A guy like uh, Garrett Cole, he, he's going to have a long leash and, and they're going to give him the chance to finish and go, go as deep as he wants. But there are other pitchers who third time through the order, analytics will tell you third time through the order, the statistics are going to change and you might want to get a fresh arm in there. So that's where that bullpen is really, really going to help the Yankees this season. And a lot of that credit goes to Matt Blake, the pitching coach coming over from Cleveland. But I wanted to ask about someone who doesn't get enough of the limelight. And I'm sure, you know, with your involvement, you know a lot about him. That's the director of pitching, Sam Bren. I'm kind of just wondering what his role has been in this pitching kind of, you know, the Yankees went from that 17 to 19 era where the pitching held them back. And now it seems like it's really come to the forefront. So just wondering the role that he's played in that. I think someone like Sam, from what Yankee folks have told me who work with him directly, he's someone who's going to really dig in on the biomechanical side of pitching and is really going to show a pitcher, this is why you're succeeding at this pitch. And maybe if you change this a little bit, whether it's an arm angle or the way your body is tilting, 
this might help this pitch be more successful. I thought it was really neat that earlier this year, Michael King brought his name up after having a particularly good outing and just talked about the, the byplay the two of them have had. And then in, Matt Blake does, does deserve credit. I mean, one of the things you look at this year is how many Yankee pitchers have suddenly incorporated the cutter. Oh, that's not by surprise. That's clearly something that the organization and the pitching staff thought would be a factor. And it's worked for Cortez. It's worked for Tyone. Cole is throwing the cutter more than he ever had in his career. So it's very smart of you to bring that up because we sometimes think that these guys are all robots and you push a button and you go out there. They, they want feedback. They want coaching. They are the best in the world at what they do, but everybody can get better. I mean, a couple of years ago with, with Cole, it was bringing the changeup in more often. This guy is a, someone who challenged for a Cy Young and just decided I, I want to get better. So, so I think we've seen that, that evolution with a lot of the Yankee pitchers. You know, we talked a lot about the pitching, and I want to focus on the bullpen. There's been a lot of greatness out of this bullpen. Michael King, for me, has been someone who's really been a standout. Clay Holmes as well. We saw that at the end of last season. But a role this Chapman at times this season, he's getting the job done under two ERA, but has seemed to get into some pinches and trouble in the ninth inning, getting the saves, but it's sometimes scary. Have you noticed anything there where they should stick with Chapman at the closer position, or do you think there should be – options or opportunities for other guys i don't think that chapman needs to be an ironclad decision in the ninth inning when he's pitching the way he is right now because you described it perfectly it's been adventurous and the thing that i've noticed in these years of covering chapman is this is a guy who can be as intimidating as anyone in baseball and has 105 tattooed on his arm because that's how hard he threw a pitch once but when he feels as if he's lost his fastball command, it's almost as if the muscular 300-pound bouncer turns into a 140-pound guy who doesn't want to challenge anyone. He becomes a different pitcher, and suddenly it's more reliant on the breaking pitch or the splitter. And without that fastball, any pitcher will tell you, you've got to be able to spot your fastball. You've got to be able to let the hitter know that you're willing to challenge them with that pitch. But you brought up King. You brought up Holmes. As the Yankee season moves forward and the way that they have started, there has to be talk about a World Series right now. You have to think that this is a team that could win it all. You're not going to let a postseason game or a postseason series disappear because you have to stick with Chapman because he has been your closer. We've talked about it throughout this interview. You have other options. You have other weapons. So I think Chapman has earned the right to fail and bounce back. We saw him do that last year. But I also think watching the way that King and Holmes are pitching right now, I'm not Aaron Boone, but if you asked me right now, you've, you've got to get two batters out and, and they're anybody, they're, pick anybody in baseball, pick Vladdy Guerrero and pick Bichette, pick whoever you want. And you can pitch one guy to one batter and one guy to the other batter from the bullpen. I'm taking Holmes one batter. I'm taking King for the other batter. Join with Jack Curry. Just a few more questions. Thank you for taking the time. We'd be remiss to not bring up Aaron Judge when we're talking about the Yankees leading the team once again, betting on himself in the offseason. First off, just how much money has he made, you know, over this two-month span? And second off, how important has he been for this club this year? Well, Ryan, my brother is the actuary. I am not an actuary. I am a baseball broadcaster. So I, I, I'm having fun with you. you. You said it best. 
when that story broke on opening day, I was working with Bob Lorenz and John Flaherty. Flash, of course, a former major league catcher, 14-year veteran. I remember him saying, I've had teammates who have bet on themselves. Let's see how it evolves. Well, right now, if you're Aaron Judge, you're feeling phenomenal about the way you've played. And you're also feeling pretty good about your decision to not sign that deal. I thought that that was a fair deal by the Yankees. <clears throat> Excuse me there for a second. I thought that was a fair offer from the Yankees when you talk about where Judge was going to be as a free agent. He's going to be 31 years old. He is someone who has had an injury history. But that's for me. That's my opinion. The only opinion that matters is Judge and his agent. And if they were not happy or content with that offer, you play the season and you move toward free agency. And Ryan, the answer to your question is we're going to see. We're going to see where this type of season, especially if it continues in some form, where, where does it take Aaron Judge financially? want to ask another question about this Yankees lineup. When you look at it, what's one guy that stands out to you and says, if this guy starts to heat up, then it can take the lineup to a whole other place? I look at Gallo and I look at Hicks, but I, I really Gallo is the one guy. And I know Gallo is, is a three outcome player. I, I know it's Homer strikeout walk for most of the time, but he has shown in the last couple of weeks, more life in his bat squaring up baseballs better, taking a few baseballs deep. So I start to look at what Judge and Stanton and Rizzo, and Rizzo has had his, his own long drought there, Donaldson, what they have given them. And if you could piggyback Gallo, I forgot DJ LeMayu, by the way, if you could suddenly have Gallo in there. And the thing about Gallo, guys, is, is if Judge and Stanton are carrying the load, Gallo has to be a contributor. He doesn't have to be the guy who had 40 plus homers in Texas. He's got to be a contributor. He's got to get on base. I think he's always going to be a big strikeout guy. He admitted that he did interviews in spring training where he basically said, this is who I am. I have a big swing and I'm going to swing and miss a lot. But if, if the production could grow beyond what we saw last year and what we saw in the beginning of this year, I think that would be a, a big uh, plus for the Yankees. Last question for you here. It's May 19th. Obviously, a lot can happen, Jack, but as of right now, the Yankees sitting in first place in the AL East, how far do you think this team can go? I said it earlier in the interview, uh, I think they can win a World Series. And if you're the Yankees, you have to be thinking that in the clubhouse. When the season started, we have a little fun at yes, people pick win totals. I had them at 94. And I think 94 could win you a division, but definitely would have gotten you uh, a wild card. Well, 94 is now looking like it might be a little low. They will have a slump during the season. There will be a period where this blazing start will be questioned because they did have a softer schedule. But once you get yourself in the 20 game over 500 range and, and you haven't even played 50 games yet or however many games they've played, you've put yourself in position to, to get to the postseason. And you start to think that, hey, th this is a team that could win a World Series. And I think with this lineup, I think with this starting rotation, which has been really good, and I keep harping on the bullpen, but I think this bullpen can help them win a World Series. And guys, they're doing things differently this year. Their defense has been better. They've run the bases better. They're putting the ball in play more. This version of the Yankees is, is much better, I think, than the 2021 version. Jack Curry, thank you so much for taking the time with us. We'll be right back here with more one-on-one. -on -one. 